and adults, you can open your Bibles. Matthew chapter 20. Oh, excuse me. Is that a little? So we're going to be picking up in our series, A King Like No Other, as we work our way through the book of Matthew together. I think the COVID season has disrupted travel on many levels, but maybe last week or, uh, or so you did some traveling or you had some people come to you for Thanksgiving. Any travel? Anybody go that you're back? Okay, good, good. Yeah, yeah you, you traveled, yes. Um, maybe you've got some travel plans over Christmas as well or some family that's going to come in and see you over Christmas. It is that time of year when we travel. Well, we're, we're going to pick up in Matthew 20 with that time of year when traveling happened for them. So we pick up and Jesus is on the road. He's on the road with his disciples. And we often think of Jesus with just 12 disciples with them. He did have his 12 disciples, but there was a much broader group that typically traveled with Jesus. They were all traveling together because it was, you might say, Thanksgiving. You know, everybody travels at Thanksgiving, right? It was kind of like their Thanksgiving, but it was Passover, and during Passover, I mean, everybody was traveling. And you know how crazy travel is over Thanksgiving, right? So uh, we tried to get, uh, we had our, our sons come in uh, for Thanksgiving, which was just a delight. Um, but getting one of them back home to Connecticut was a trip. It was difficult because things kind of fell through and it was a little crazy. And trying to find a source of transportation on the Sunday after Thanksgiving is a little rough. It involved driving a U-Haul, but that's all I'll say. <laughs> that's, how he got, that's how he got back in a U-Haul. Um, but if you can imagine, that Thanksgiving, everybody just gets up and goes somewhere different, back to their home, family, friends, whatever. But here, the whole country was on the move, and they were all going to the same place. They were all going to the city of Jerusalem to, to, to celebrate the Passover. Uh, and so we're going to pick up with Jesus on the road to the, the Passover. Now, you know, that's why everybody's traveling. They're all going to the Passover, but Jesus knows he's traveling for a different reason. He knows that's not the ultimate reason he's going to Jerusalem. He has a much more important, much more significant reason that he is uh, traveling. This is a very, very big trip. You know, you know, when you take a trip, if, if you've got young kids or you had young kids, you know how this, this goes. Uh, you know how hearts tend to come out on a long trip, you know? The, the, the third time that you're asked, are we there yet? Or the, the, the bathroom, I love the bathroom break that is desperately needed 20 minutes after you stopped to go to the bathroom, you know? Um, and you just, hearts tend to come out. Well, we're going to get to see some hearts come out on this trip. And this trip is going to actually leave us right at the gates of Jerusalem. Um, now, if you're, if you're unfamiliar, the whole book of Matthew has been, has been climbing this hill that we're, we're about to summit as we get to Jerusalem. Um, Jesus has been traveling now for multiple chapters, starting in the northern part of Israel and making his way on south. So geographically, the whole book is pointing here. And then, of course, all of Jesus' life was pointing right here. So we're, we're about to summit the mountain, so to speak, of the life of Jesus. He's about to get to Jerusalem. But there are three little stops along the way, 
before we get there. And that's what we encounter at the end of Matthew chapter 20. So we're going to take each of these one at a time. And what I want us to see as we look is, is just to look for the heart of Christ as we see him making his way towards Jerusalem, the heart of Christ. So let's, let's begin. I'll, I'll read in, beginning in verse 17, we'll read this first little uh, pit stop on the, the journey, this wayside conversation, verse 17 through 19 of Matthew 20. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. This is the third time in the book of Matthew that Jesus has predicted his own uh, crucifixion, but this is by far the most detailed that he's been. Um, so he takes time to explain to them why they're going to Jerusalem. And they needed this because they thought it was Thanksgiving. They thought it was Passover time. And in fact, after he's done talking, they're still going to think that that's what's going on. They're, they're, they will in fact miss these very specific and precise words that he's giving. Some of them are thinking only in terms of the Passover. There seems to be another group of them that are thinking in terms of perhaps Jesus being like coronated, like becoming a, an earthly king like right now. And so they're, they're excited about these possibilities. And yet Jesus takes time to patiently instruct his disciples. And it's very precise. He says that he will be delivered over to the chief priests. This is, a, this is a, a way of talking about what Judas was about to do, that he would be delivered over, that he would be betrayed into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes. So Jesus makes it clear, I'm going to be handed over, and I'm going to be handed over to the Jewish authorities, not to the Gentiles, but to the Jewish authorities. And they're going to be the ones that put me on trial. They're going to be the ones that will condemn me to death. And then they're going to hand me over to the Gentiles. Now, if you're familiar with the story as it unfolds in the rest of the chapter, I mean, this is almost like the rest of the book of Matthew in three verses. I mean, Jesus is so specific as to what's going to happen. He is seeking earnestly to prepare his disciples. Don't be surprised by what is about to happen. Don't, don't be caught unaware. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be put before the Jewish authorities. They're going to condemn me. They're going to put me in front of the Gentile authorities. And they're going to do three things to me. They're going to mock me and scourge me and crucify me. He says all three of those. This is the first time in the book of Matthew that that word has been used. Crucify. This is the first time that he has been that specific as to his manner of death that he is telling them will happen. But he doesn't just, doesn't just tell them all the bad stuff, and then he says, and will be raised on the third day. And so he's seeking to give them kind of a source of hope and peace for what they're about to walk through. Now, think, think about this, right? Have you ever, have you ever like, 
walked through something difficult and you're trying to care for those around you while you're walking through something difficult? You know, you know how, how hard that can be, right? I mean, here is our Lord, and he's heading towards the cross. His disciples are not heading towards the cross. Our Lord is heading to be mocked. They're not going to get mocked. He's going to be scourged. They're not going to be scourged. He's going to be crucified. They're not going to be crucified. And yet, his concern is for them. His heart is for them. His desire is that as he walks through all this, that their faith would remain strong, that they would remain uh, trusting in God even during this difficult time. With this weight on his shoulders, see how he cares. See how he instructs and patiently instructs over and over again. We have a patient Savior. Patient to instruct and then instruct and then instruct and then we're going to see shortly they still don't get it and yet he remains patient. Friend, when you come to Jesus, do you expect him to be patient with you? I don't know about you. When I approach God, I tend to think that God will respond to me like I would. And and that's usually kind of annoyed. (laughs) A little bit impatient. Kind of over this. Like I would be tempted to respond maybe to my kids after the third time of needing to tell them the same thing. And yet he is so patient uh, with his people in our lack of understanding, in our slowness to learn, in our slowness to grow. Our Lord is patient. All right, so we see the patience of Christ here in the first little wayside, and we're going to see that again in the next little wayside, which we're going to pick up and read together, starting in verse 20 down through verse 28, um, as James and John come with their mom for a request to Jesus. Let's read this together. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. He said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thank you. So here comes James and John with their mom. And this is the first indication we have of that bigger group that was traveling with Jesus, right? So apparently James and John's mom was a part of that group. 
And she grabs her two boys and they come aside to Jesus and they ask, hey, can we like be the prime minister in the kingdom? Maybe secretary of state, prime minister, whatever you want to call it. We know you're the king. That's cool. We're not asking to be number one, just number two. All right, just number two. We're very humble. Um, in fact, I'll even put up with number three. He could be number two, as long as I can. That's fine. That's fine. You know, Lord, obviously that's up to you. And obviously you see that we would be the ones that would be two and three. So that's why we're coming to you and asking for this. On one hand, you can see, you know, glimmers of faith in that they understand that Jesus is going to be king. They, they are a little off as to how that's going to work out over the next few days. They are anticipating something very different. And in fact, the first word of verse 20 just says, then, like then, Jesus had just finished talking about he's going to be crucified. And then they come up scrambling for roles in the kingdom. And it just is this horrible juxtaposition between the the humility of Christ and the sufferings of Christ and the selfish ambition of his people clamoring to be the greatest. It would be easy to point our fingers at James and John, and on some level, yeah, you know, I mean, this was Jesus, and he had just talked to them. He was there in person, and they were kind of missing the point as they talked about being numbers two and three in his kingdom. And yet, this idea of seeking to be great, of seeking to be better than, of of comparing with each other, of seeking to be better than each other. This is an infection that we all have. This is an infection amongst all people and still amongst God's people as well. That there would be a little bit of elbowing, a little bit of seeking to be better than. You know, I don't have to be number one as long as I'm number two or three. You know, like that's about where where I should be. It wasn't just these two, by the way, that, that were infected by this. It was all of the disciples because we hear that when the 10 heard of it, they were indignant at the two brothers. How dare you guys do this? Because I'm supposed to be number two, not you, right? I mean, obviously, I'm the one with the leadership gift. Obviously, I'm the spiritual one. Can't you tell that I'm the humble one? (laughs) I should be the one who is number two or number three in the kingdom. They are indignant at each other. And I understand they were being elbowed out of the way. Sort of, let's get in first. Let's get in first and let's get this set up. And then Jesus can, you know, distribute all the lesser cabinet positions to the rest of these guys, but let's, let's get in there first. I noticed the incredible difference between the indignation of the ten and the response of the Lord because he does not respond with indignation. And if there was one that could have, it was him. He was the one on his way to Calvary. He had just explained to them what he was about to go do. And they are so not tracking with him nor thinking about him that they're elbowing for greatness amongst each other. And yet his correction is most gentle. He says, 
You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. You know, I've actually struggled a little bit with how to preach this particular passage because I feel like I've preached it four times already as we've gone through the book of Matthew. That greatness looks like serving, doesn't look like pursuing greatness. Now, if I feel that way, as I preach my way through the book of Matthew, I can only imagine how Jesus felt as he lived the book of Matthew because, yeah, he had said this before. This was not the first time they were hearing what true greatness was all about. But somehow they were still missing what true greatness was all about. Now, right in the middle of this, he gives us verse 28. I read this at the beginning of our church service today, where he says, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This might be, well, this is the first time in the book of Matthew where we get a real concise theology of the cross, where Jesus doesn't just tell them what he's going to go do, but why he's going to go do it. I came to serve. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. Up to now, when he had told them what was coming, I will be delivered over. I will be crucified. I will be mocked. I will be scourged. He was telling them what would happen. Now he's telling them why it will happen. Because I've come to serve. This is not an accident. This isn't just something happening to me. This is me serving. This isn't somebody taking my life from me. I am giving my life as a ransom for many. There's deep and wonderful theology here that that Christ died in the place of sinners. And yet, the verse is not meant to just function as theology. As beautiful as that is, and that should capture our heart, we should be thankful to God for what he's done there. Jesus sets it up with one purpose in mind, and that is as an example. He sets it up as an example of serving. He says, it should not be so among you where you're competing like this, but whoever will be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to serve, but to be, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he, he articulates the theology of the cross, but he gives us the example of the cross as well. The cross is meant to be an example for the people of God, that we, would, that we, are, we are saved by it. We are saved by this once and for all work of Christ, but we're also transformed by it and made more like the one who puts others in front of himself, who, who cares for others above himself, who gives himself to others. What a gentle correction he gave to his disciples as they were clamoring for greatness. And he just shows, here's greatness. And I sadly can relate to the disciples. Can you relate to the disciples? I can sadly relate almost every day to that feeling of wanting to kind of prove myself, make myself look a certain way, want to excel, want to 
do better than, want to, all of these things which eventually are about nothing more than my own glory. And yet our Lord shows us this example of, of giving our lives for others. The Lord's been working on my heart of just repenting of selfish ambition, repenting of this desire to put myself forward. And what I see here is that we have a very gentle Savior that we, we can repent before because his, even his correction here is, is so uh, patient and gentle with, with them. I pray that God would give us a, a holy ambition to make his name great and not our name great. That would be true of Mercy Hill, that, that, that it would be the name of Christ, not the name of Mercy Hill, that would be great. That it would be the name of Jesus, not any of us here, that we would be forgotten and he would be remembered. So the last little aside we see before he gets to Jerusalem again shows his heart of compassion for people. We're going to pick up and read this last section together, beginning in verse 29 and going just a few verses to the end of the chapter. Let's read Matthew 20, verse 29. And as they went out of, Jerusalem, of, of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called to them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. And with that, we're at Jerusalem's gates, where we'll pick up next week. So Jesus is making his way out of Jericho. Jericho is about two miles away from Jerusalem. So this is it. He's heading up uphill towards the city. And now at this point, a great crowd is following him. So this is going to turn into the triumphal entry in our next passage. So there's just this kind of fever pitch of kind of human level excitement about Jesus. So there's this great crowd following. There's all this enthusiasm. Is this guy going to be crowned king? Is he about to, you know, overwhelm the Romans? All of these kind of things. It all seems really important. And in fact, it's far more important than anybody knows that's in that crowd. Only Jesus realizes what he's about to go do and the significance about what he is about to go do. And in the middle of that, there's this interruption. There's this crying out of two blind men, son of David, have mercy on us. And I, I see the juxtaposition here between the response of Jesus and the response of the crowd. How does the crowd respond to these needy men? How does the crowd respond to these, these two who are blind, who need nothing but mercy from Christ? Do they, they part like the Red Sea and pull these guys up front and say, here, here's Jesus, he's, he's your hope. Uh, you know, look to him, talk with him. No, the crowd rebukes them. 
So intent are they on their own agenda, their own plan, and what they think is important that they miss these two guys and in fact rebuke them. But these two blind men tend to, seems to me they see a little better than the crowd. The crowd is blind as to what's important and the blind men are the ones seeing. They call out to Jesus even louder, son of David, that is king of Israel, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops and asks them what they want and they articulate it. And then it says in verse 34, Jesus in pity touched their eyes. Now, you might be reading a different version than I am. The ESV says in pity. Uh, Many of them say moved with compassion. I like that phrase a little bit more. Moved with compassion. So I know how I feel when I'm interrupted. And oftentimes there's this kind of, well, I'd say, do, do any of us, do we like being interrupted? You know, I don't like being interrupted. Now, if I do well, I can kind of control that and respond graciously to whoever is interrupting. Um, but we see none of that in our Lord. We don't see him sort of overcoming his frustration at these guys. Rather, we see him moved with compassion towards these guys. We actually get a vision of the heart of Christ right here. He is moved with compassion towards them. The weakness, the need, the disability, the disadvantage, the brokenness, the disease as is brought to Jesus brings out from Jesus not annoyance, not frustration, not a kind of controlled exasperation, but it brings out pity and mercy and compassion. And the heart of Jesus goes out to them, and then the hand of Jesus goes out to them, and then the power of Jesus goes out to them, and they are healed. And we see something here of why Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's not skipping over the needs of his people on his way. Because the whole reason he's going is for the needs of his people. We're seeing his heart revealed in the journey, that his heart is one of compassion towards us, towards you, towards me. That he's he's not so caught up in where he's going as to miss the needs of those around him. He's He is here for the needs of those around him. Praise God that we have such a Savior as this. Praise God that we have a Savior, not who just did the works he was to do or did the acts of healing or the acts of teaching or the acts of saving that he was to do, but that his heart was to do those acts. That his heart was actually for the people he's serving. I marvel at this. I marvel at the Savior who doesn't, there's there's no sense of duty to it at all. There is a sense of, of Jesus acting out of who he is as he walks forward towards Jerusalem, that he is giving himself to his people. And it doesn't start on the cross. That's the ultimate example of it on the cross. But all along the way, He is concerned for his disciples. He's concerned to help pull them back out of their sin. He's concerned for those who come to him with with needs. So praise God for the heart, the compassionate heart of Christ. And so, friend, 
think I shared at the beginning, just I'm aware of how hard of a season this is for so many in our church. Um, I think the first thing under attack when we walk through something difficult is the enemy attacks our perception of the heart of God. When bad things happen, and bad things do happen, God can work all things for good, but they can still be bad when they happen. Yeah? When bad things happen, the enemy attacks our thoughts about God, our thoughts about Christ, our thoughts about his, is he so compassionate? Then why is X, Y, Z happening? Friend, be aware that is the strategy of the enemy. Be aware that is coming your way. The, the threat is not the bad event. The threat is the whisper that comes with that bad event that speaks lies about our God. And that's why we need our Bibles, that we could see and cherish and hold on to the heart of Christ so that when things are difficult and when we can't see it, that we can rely upon what he has said about himself. Um, friend, don't you know that's exactly what Jesus was preparing his disciples for? They were going to walk through his, his crucifixion, and it would, in fact, be hard for them. You can only imagine. You've been following Jesus for three years of your life. You left everything else behind, and now he just get killed. And you hadn't picked up on the teaching. And, and just what a place of despair this would be for them. And yet he's, he's revealing his heart over and over so that they could trust him even in that. Friend, what, what is he calling you to trust him in? And what, what fear are, your, are you facing that you can't bring to this Savior? Is there any fear that you would have that you can't bring to a compassionate Savior like this, to the compassionate servant who, who came not to be served but to serve? Is there any sin that you can't bring to Him? Do you, do you feel like you've gone so far as to be kind of outside of the, the realm of His mercy? Are you assuming on the thoughts of God? Assuming that he'll respond to you like you would respond to you? Or are you informing yourself afresh? You've got to do that. We, we've got to inform ourselves from here what God is like. Not just let our own minds talk to us about what God is like. This is what God is like. He's told us what he is like. And praise God that he is like this. So there is no sin too big that you can't bring to him, that you can't come back to him. There's there ought be nothing that you're fearing so much you can't bring to him or a need that you can't lay before him or a situation that you can't entrust to him. Friend, this is our compassionate Savior. So let us bring our needs to him. Let us bring our sins to him. Let us bring our weakness to him. Let us trust his gentle, compassionate heart towards us. And let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for what you did in the Gospels. Thank you for all these acts of healing and instruction and gentle correction. Thank you for what you did in going through these trials and mocking and scourging and crucifixion. Thank you, Lord, that this is not just revealing, though, what you did, but who you are. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are compassionate to us. 
and that you're compassionate to us today, where we are today, and that you're desiring that we look to you today. Lord, would you give us grace to do that, to see you afresh, to trust you afresh, to rely on you afresh. Now, Lord, as we sing, to worship you afresh, because surely you are worthy of our praise. We ask this in your name. Amen.